Good morning. As we've already mentioned a few times, today is Father's Day, and it's for that reason that I chose this particular portion of text, Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In it, we find a rather brief but yet strong example of a godly father in the person of Job. Or to be honest, when I was a kid, I thought his name was Job. I don't know if any of you made that mistake, but I've learned better now, so that's good. Um, I feel like in this passage, we as fathers can learn a lot about uh, fatherhood and uh, how we can be a better father from this one example. Of course, you could probably think of other good examples of fathers in the Bible, but this is one I thought we could um, focus on this morning and learn a lot from, even in just these short five verses. And mothers, I believe you can learn some of these same lessons as well, and I hope this is helpful to you also. So in short, in this passage, we see in Job a strong example of a spiritual leader for his children. Let me say that again. In this short passage, we see an example in the person of Job as a spiritual leader for his children. That spiritual leadership is expressed in a number of ways, and uh, I pray that we'll learn from this text and be challenged as we explore those ways, which I'll get into in just a bit. So we're going to tackle these five verses. Verses 1 through 3 will tell us specifically who Job is, and then verses 4 through 5 will focus primarily on his role as spiritual leader of his family. So let's begin. First of all, who was Job? The scripture tells us a number of things about him in verses 1 through 3. So the first thing, and I hope you'll have your Bibles open for this because we'll be going through this text extensively. The first thing we learn is that Job was a Middle Eastern man from the land of Uz during his time, or during this time of the patriarchs, uh, that is the time of Genesis, and in verse 1 it says a little bit about this. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So here we're given this introduction to Job. And I want to just state up front that Job was a real person. And, and you might say, why are you pointing that out? There, there are a number of commentaries and just teachers that you might hear from time to time who say, no, this is just a parable. It's a story that's meant to, to tell a spiritual lesson of some sort. And I say, no, this is a real person. He's presented to us as such. He's not a fictional character. He's very real. And one of the ways we know that is that he's not just mentioned here. He's mentioned in Ezekiel as well. You don't have to turn there, but in Ezekiel 14, verses 13 through 14, it says, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send a famine upon it, and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver it but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. So he's named among two other historical people, Noah and Daniel, and uh, you wouldn't expect that third one just to be a made-up character. James 5.11 also mentions him by name as well. So it says he lived in this land of Uz, and the exact location of that is unknown, but one of the most common assumptions is that it was in the land of Edom, and that's the first thing we're told about him. If we go to Lamentations 4.21, and again, you don't have to turn there, but it says this. It says, Rejoice and be glad, O daughters of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. 
And if you just Googled that, you know, pulled up a map of ancient Israel and places in the Bible, you'd see that it's just south of Judah, the land of Edom is, and also just south of the Dead Sea. So we can say with relative certainty, or at least as an educated guess, that's probably where Job lived, in this land of Edom, in this land of Uz. When did Job live? Well, that's a little bit more difficult to answer. Verse 1 doesn't give us any hints. However, we do have at least three other clues from later in the book. First, in Job 1.15, which isn't too far removed from our text, verse 15, and also verse 17, mentions two groups, and this helps us here. It, it mentions the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, who raid Job's property, who kill some of his servants, take some of the animals, that kind of thing. And because these are described as marauding tribes at this time that suddenly came and attacked Job's family, rather than these groups being settled city dwellers, we might deduce from that that Job living, lived during the time of the patriarchs, that is the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, generally speaking, since they weren't yet established as nations that were established in a set place. Secondly, the fact that Job does not seem to know God's designated name, Yahweh, which is first used in Exodus 3, that also might suggest that he lived before the time of Moses, because he doesn't call God by that name. And finally, because his wealth is described in terms of flocks and servants and abundant offspring, not in terms of gold and silver like we see in David and in Solomon, that also might lend itself to suggesting that Job lived during this time of Genesis, somewhere in the middle of the time of Genesis. So that's why if you've ever picked up one of our Bible through the year schedules and you picked up the one that was chronological, you might have seen that Job is placed very early in that chronological reading schedule, and that's why. You might say, well, how did they know that? These are some of the reasons as to why it would be placed there. So that's where he lived. That's probably when he lived. What else can we say about this man? Well, it tells us something even greater about him, not just these facts about where he lived and when, but it tells us about his character, his character. So let's go back to verse 1. Job 1.1 says this, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and here it is, that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. See those words there, blameless and upright. So here this word blameless, uh, I, I think pretty clearly refers to his actions, the way he lived. It's not saying that he was perfect. In fact, as you look through the Bible and you see that word blameless, it doesn't mean that necessarily. It's saying uh, that he is above reproach is a good, good way to put it. And, and actually, if you go back 2018, if you look on our website, I preached a whole sermon on this concept of blameless, and I mentioned Job in that message. You can go back and, and listen to that if you, if you wish. But what I'm trying to tell you is this text is not suggesting he is perfect. Rather, he's saying he was morally exemplary. He was um, above reproach. And the way we know that is because of the way verse 1 unpacks this thought for us. It says, Job was blameless and upright, but it doesn't stop there. It explains those two words. It says, he was one who feared God and turned away from evil. So we can see that this word blameless means that he worshiped the one true God, Yahweh, and he lived out his faith. 
And as a result, he was morally upright. In essence, the book of Job is telling us that he was one of the most morally outstanding individuals in his day. And we know that, again, it's reinforced for us in verse 8. Just a few verses later, if you just look there in your Bibles, verse 8, this is where the Lord says to Satan, he says, have you considered my servant Job? For, here it is, there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. In other words, he's saying, this is one of the most holy men that is living during this time. None like him on the earth. He walked in close fellowship with God, and that fellowship was reflected in his actions. So thus far, we've already learned that Job was a man who lived during the time of the patriarchs, and he feared God, and he also lived righteously. What else do we learn about him? Well, the text tells us that God blessed Job with many children and an abundance of possessions. And I pointed out that aspect about Job's character, about him being a morally upright man, because we're going to see how that plays out, at least in his example as a father, later on in this passage. So, two things. He has many children and also many possessions. First, the children are mentioned here. Verse 2 tells us, there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. So, ten children in all, if you're doing the math. Uh, And that's a pretty significant number. And these children certainly would have been a great help to him in managing his flocks and his lands as workers in his, his estate as well. Secondly, we see that not only did God bless Job with children, but he also blessed him with wealth. Job 1.3 says this, Job possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all of the people of the East. That's an incredible amount of wealth and possessions. You look at those numbers, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, which means that's 1,000 oxen, if you understand what a yoke is, it's a pair of them, so 1,000 oxen, also 500 female donkeys and many servants. We are meant to be amazed at these numbers, even thousands of years removed from this time. We're supposed to be amazed at this, everything that he has. Now, there's a lot that we can actually extrapolate from these figures, First of all, when we see the number of 7,000 sheep, it's clear that Job owned a lot of land, okay? Case in point, I love my house. I love where I live. It's great. It's awesome. I love sitting in our backyard. I don't think I could hold 7,000 sheep, though, okay? Maybe a few, and, and I was telling Sarah this earlier this week, and I was so excited about this. I thought, wait, now how many sheep could I actually have on my property? That's a, good, that's a good question. I mean, I can't fit 7,000, but then I thought, I, and then it led me in the middle of the week when I should have been studying more of this to Googling the square footage of a sheep, you know? I don't know, anybody search for that? That's on my search history now, just so you know. Google's gonna start suggesting sheep to me that I can buy, I guess, I don't know. Um, if, I, if I pack them, at, you know, up against each other, I think the answer is 700, you know, if they don't have any room to move around. And then I started like, wait, they can't live like that. What if... What if I need to give them some space to walk around? Uh, Then I could hold 70 sheep. So there you go. Now you know that fact. That will help you as you go about your week. You're welcome. Um, Google how many sheep you could hold, and uh, then you will have wasted your time as well. Um, 7,000 sheep. So he has a lot of land. All right. So if you uh, factor all that 
They, they need space to graze. Uh, but that's not all. He had 3,000 camels besides and 500 yoke of oxen. So not only would these animals take up a lot of space, but yokes of oxen, you know what they're used for? They're used for plowing the fields, you know, tilling the soil. So that means he not only has room for them to graze, but he also has fields where he's planting things and he's using these oxen to, to plow the field. So this guy has a lot of property, you can tell, just from the amount of, of animals that are described here. But besides the land, we can learn even more about Job from these numbers. We have already noted that it says he has 3,000 camels. And uh, the commentator John Hartley says this, quote, the camel was a prestigious animal and such an enormous number symbolizes great status. In other words, it wasn't a cheap animal. For Job to have 3,000 of them shows that he was enormously wealthy. And further, the fact that he owned so many of these camels suggested that maybe he engaged in caravan trade, trade across many miles of land, traveling to distant nations. That means Job would have had access to spices and materials and maybe wood from other countries that ordinary people wouldn't have had access to because he has these animals that can transport traders and other individuals far distances. The 500 female donkeys number uh, would have provided milk for Job's estate, and they would have also borne offspring, uh, making them more valuable than the males. And finally, the text tells us that he had many male and female servants, obviously to take care of all of this estate that we've just described. So here's what I want you to see. After all that, get, get my house out of, your, you know, out of your head, all the sheep and everything. What we want to see from this text is that there are three things it's telling us about him. Job was the holiest man on earth. He was the wealthiest man on earth. And because of those first two things, he was the greatest, most famous man on the earth. It says it this way, he was the greatest of all the people of the East. He was the richest, most revered, most respected, and most famous person of his time. That brings us to the key portion of our text today, verses 4 and 5. What can we learn from Job's example, specifically as a father? Well, we've already said that Job's a father, a father of ten, in fact. And we also said that we can learn a lot from this example. So let's look at these verses, 4 and 5, and see what we can learn it says, his sons, or Job's sons, used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters and eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned. And he cursed and curse God in their hearts. And thus Job did continually. So now we have been introduced to this person of Job. We know who he is. And this narrative portion of the book begins with verse 4. Of course, one of the primary purposes of this section is to give us the context for the tragedy that will befall Job's children later in chapter 1. These two verses, in other words, tell us why it is that they gathered together and why it is that their lives were all taken at the same time. But however, more than just giving us the setting for a later tragedy, this text also tells us about Job's family. And the first thing that I see from this section 
is that Job raised children who showed love for each other. That's demonstrated in three ways. First, Job was blessed with children who stayed close into adulthood. I want you to notice that in verse 4. These are children who stayed close in adulthood. For it says that they all made a regular practice of gathering together and feasting. Verse 4 says this. Let's read it again. It says, His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Now, when I first read this, I thought what it was saying was that they each took turns and were constantly feasting, you know, like they took a day of the week or whatever, and 10 days were up, and they'd started all over again, and they were just constantly feasting. I don't think that's what it's saying, now that I'm looking at it a little bit more closely. Number one, because later on it says, when the days of feasting were over, days plural, meaning that each, each one lasted a few days. When one brother held a feast, it lasted a few days, and then it was over. But then secondly, I don't think it's trying to say that they're doing anything in excess here. This is presented to us in a positive light. It's saying that one of them took a day, probably a day of the year, could have been a birthday, could have been anything. It was a non-religious holiday, something that they designated on their calendar to go and gather as a family and to feast together. And it said, at one point or another in the year, each brother would take a day of that year, and they would hold a feast, and it would last for seven days or several days, and then they would depart. And that's what they're doing. So here we, we have this feast uh, that's described, uh, led by each brother, lasting several days, and said, when those days, plural, of the feast had run their course, this is when Job would send for them. This must have been a blessing to Job. Wouldn't it have been? You know, if you're a father, and you have grown children, and you see them desiring to do this, to gather together on a regular basis, to make a practice of this, and to not let that fall to the ground, how much of a blessing that must have been. You know, it's something that we can pray for as parents, but ultimately we can't control. We can try to instill that in our children, but ultimately they make their own decisions, and so we can never quite put our, our finger on it and control everything that's going to turn out. But we can say, as we look at Job's example, he must have been proud. He must have been excited that his children do this. And so this first thing I want you to see is he had children that stayed close into their adult years. What a blessing that would have been. There's another thing I notice from this text, and that is that Job's children um, specifically cared for one another. Verse 4 also says this. So let's read it again. It says, his, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. Again, commentator John Hartley says, quote, the brothers extended a special invitation to their sisters who were presumably unmarried and living with their father at the time. So the brothers looked out for their sisters. They cared for them. They provided for them in these feasts. And in the time when women didn't have the same social status as men, the brothers treated their sisters as equals and showed love by including them in this celebration. You know, if we just pause and think about the application of this as well, if you have at least one son and one daughter, it warms your heart 
when you see your son look out for his sister, doesn't it? You see the son looking out for the daughter. Even though um, in our own family, Caleb's younger than Amy, uh, it's been so neat for us to see at times where you can just tell he's been looking out for his sister. And as a parent, that brings joy to our hearts, and I know it must have brought joy to Job's heart as well, to see his sons not leave the sisters out, but to bring them along as well and to include them. So Job's children stayed close as they got older. The brothers cared about and looked after their sisters. And the third thing I want us to notice from this text is that all of Job's sons shared in this practice. That's also significant in its own right. It wasn't just that one of his sons was generous, but the others weren't. Or that one of his sons cared about inviting the sisters, but the others didn't. Or that one of the sons wanted to stay close to the family, but the others didn't. Rather, it says, his sons, verse 4, used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one, of each one on his day. So all of them had this practice. All of them took turns. All of them shared this as a common value. And again, what a blessing that must have been to Job. Because again, we as parents, we as fathers, pray for our children. Our desire is that all of them would grow to love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ with their whole heart, and we want them all to equally do that. But again, as we were even just praying this morning with child dedication, and we know in our own families and even just throughout the world, we cannot control that. We cannot cause the Holy Spirit to enter our child's life and heart and cause them to be saved and and to ultimately follow Christ. We can set the groundwork for it. We can try to encourage them as much as we can, but we know ultimately a lot of it is in the Lord's hands. So what a blessing it is when you have a family when all of your children are walking with the Lord. And I'm sure that's all of our prayers, right? And if you have a situation where maybe some of your children are not, don't give up, don't lose heart, because you can still pray for them. Notice here that Job is praying for his adult children later on in this passage. This is a relationship with he has with them as they are grown up. So we can continue to pray to that end. But here, at whatever point in his life he is at, he is able to stop and just observe what's going on and rejoice. Rejoice that they all still desire to be with one another, that they look out for one another, and that all of his children share this same value. What a blessing it must have been for him. Now, at this point, before we go to verses 4 and 5, I want to infer something just a little bit, but I think it's an educated guess. It's not just kind of guessing out of nowhere. The text only tells us what his children are doing here, okay? It doesn't say how they came to have these values, but I'm going to go out on a limb a little bit and say that Job must have had at least some role in instilling these values into his children. And again, he couldn't absolutely guarantee that this would happen, okay? You as a parent know that there are certain things that you can try to instill in your children and they might not pick up. You do your best and you try on your part to do what you can, and then at a certain point it's up to them. But at least we could say here, I think, that Job must have at least been trying to instill these values in his children, okay? And the reason I say that is because if you flip to the very end of the book, let's do this. I'm not going to have you turn much, much, but go to chapter 42, the very end of the book of Job, okay? You can keep your finger in chapter 1 because we'll come back, but chapter 42, verse 15, 
something really neat that we see. Chapter 42, verse 15. Of course, now all of his children have died in this tragedy. I mean, without getting into the full story of the book of Job, I hope you know that. But in the end, God blesses him with more children. And here's what it says that he did. Job showed equal love to all of his children, we see from here. At the end of the book, in verse 15, chapter 42, it says that Job, quote, gave his daughters an inheritance among their brothers. You see that? Gave his daughters an inheritance among their brothers. That was not common back then. Usually it only just went to the sons. So Job is doing something very countercultural in his day, and it's a value that he had instilled to treat his children equally in all ways that he could. And so we see from this, that's something he's doing on his part. And we see it reflected in his children's lives as well in the way they treat each other, right? And you can also kind of see ways in which, where you have bad examples uh, in the Bible of parenting where the opposite is true, right? If you think of Jacob, when he has 12 children and he favors one above the other, Joseph, right? He gives him that richly ornamented coat. What's the result of his other 11 brothers? They resent him right? So we can see that at times there could be a place where a parent shows uh, preference to one child over the other, and then that becomes uh, manifested in resentment among the other children. Again, you can still instill equal treatment of your children and the kids not pick that up, but in here, in this particular case, Job was blessed in ways that he couldn't claim entirely for himself. God just happened to bless him with children who valued each other as much as he tried to, to value them together as well. Um, and what a joy it must have been for him. So that's, that's something that he got to enjoy. What do we see now as we go into verse 5? Job fostered this equal love for his children. I think that's clear as we looked in chapter 42. But there's something else that I want to show you that Job does. And this is really the primary thrust of my message here. And that is that he prayed for his children. Job chapter 1, back in chapter 1 now, verse 5, it says, And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, quote, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So there are two things here, just in verse 5, that we see that Job is doing on a regular basis. Number one, it tells us he consecrated his children. And number two, he offered sacrifices for them. Consecrated and offered sacrifices. Now, both concepts seem kind of foreign to us. We don't often think about us consecrating our children or offering, certainly offering sacrifices for our children. So we're going to have to explain this a little bit because you might be wondering, all right, he's doing that. What does that mean? How do I do that as a parent? All right. Um, first, the text says, and when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send, and here's that word, consecrate them. Consecrate them. After each specific feast was finished, Job would send for his children. So when it says he sent for them, this either means that the children just gathered on these occasions without their parents. In this case, that doesn't mean that the children neglected their father or mother. It just means that maybe on these particular circumstances, they gathered and just enjoyed time as siblings, perhaps. Or maybe Job was present for it, and when it says he sent for them, maybe after he went back home, then he sends for them to come to his house. 
In either case, I want you to see something very important here. Job used these times of celebrating and feasting, times when he knew all of his children would be together, to impart spiritual significance to their gathering. Let me say that again. Job used these times of celebrating to directly and intentionally impart spiritual meaning and significance to their gathering. The text says that he finished their times by consecrating them. If you have an NIV, this translates it as purified, he purified them, or King James says he sanctified them. Uh, the Hebrew word here is hedash. It means to set apart, to purify, to sanctify, to consecrate, or to dedicate. Here are some other examples in the Old Testament just to help us understand what's meant by that word. Genesis 2-3, this is at creation. God um, blessed the seventh day, and it says he made it holy. He made it holy. That's the same word, hadash, to set apart, to purify, sanctify, dedicate. He made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Next, in Exodus 13.2, God speaks to Moses and says this, consecrate, there's that word, to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. And then a third example, Exodus 19.14. It says, so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And there are many other references to this word in the Old Testament. So what does it mean when it says that Job consecrated his children? Well, it could mean a number of things. They may have had uh, to wash their garments as Moses did for the people. Um, he might have offered a sacrifice for them as in Exodus 13 verse 2, where all of the uh, consecrated firstborn lambs were sacrificed, or he could have simply just made a declaration over them like God did on the seventh day. He declared it to be holy. In any case, uh, all of this, I think, relates to this common idea of prayer, of prayer. That's the way we can relate this to our modern-day example of parents. Uh, when Job consecrated his children, in essence, he was offering a prayer to God and making a very visible point that his children were to be set apart in the world. They were to be dedicated to the service of God. He was reminding each of them, don't ever allow your prosperity to turn your hearts away from God. Take that thankful spirit that we've just had in celebrating together. Take that thankful spirit and now go back into your everyday work and serve God anew. Remember, you are consecrated. You are holy. You are set apart. You are a child of God. And that's not true of everybody out there in the world. Make sure you know that about yourself so you don't lose sight of your purpose. Compare this to the regular practice of the Israelites that we see in the Pentateuch and in Judges and in Kings. So when you think about the Israelites, what do they do? They complain and then they rebel. And they just repeat that over and over again. They complain and rebel, complain and rebel. But in contrast, notice what happens here in Job's children. They rejoice and are rededicated. They don't grumble and go astray. They rejoice and rededicate. And Job, as their father, is the one who reminds them of their responsibility to be set apart through this regular practice of consecration. He didn't have to do this. It wasn't required anywhere in the scriptures or of anything that God ever told him that he had to do this. He made it of his own choice to say at the end of these feasting days, I'm going to 
in, in whatever form this ceremony took, consecrate my children and say, you are set apart. You are different. Remember that. You are set apart for God. That's a wonderful thing that Job does. It's challenging to me because now my mind's thinking of how can I do that with my own children? How can I in some way regularly remind them of what their role is in this world? And it's a good question for all of us to ask as fathers this morning. Fathers, I want you to pay attention to this this morning. We don't offer sacrifices anymore, okay? We don't pour oil over our kids' heads or anything like that, right? Um, we don't talk in this, this term of, of consecrate so often. What, what can we do? We can pray for them, that's for sure. Not just pray for them in our own private times. We can pray for them openly, right? As, as we are praying to the Father and saying, God, please help them to be set apart in this world. Help them to be consecrated to your service. That's one part of it, because in that, we're talking to God, okay? But in this consecration act, I think it's communication in two different ways. It's Job communicating something to God, saying, me as a father, me, Job, I, God, I want you to know I'm consecrating my children to your service. But he's also speaking to his children in a way, because they're there. They're visibly seeing this happen, whatever it may involve. They know this is being done out loud, so you can have fathers, you can have conversations with your children about this very thing. At the end of a meal, at the end of a time together, say out loud, you know, um, kids, remember you are child, children of God. You are called to be lights in this world. Don't ever forget that. I'm praying for you as your father, and I want to pray for you now. You can pray for them openly in that time. It's so easy for us to, to celebrate together, isn't it? Like that comes naturally. We have no problem feasting. We have no problem like just rejoicing and having a good time. But for whatever reason, when it comes to having out loud conversations about spiritual things, these things can be really, really difficult and, and challenging. And, and so we just need to have courage, I think, at times to just speak up and to speak words of scripture, to pray out loud for our kids, even if they're young and they're like, dad, you're preaching to me all the time. That's okay. Ignore them. You're, you're wiser than they are, hopefully, and, and more spiritually mature than they... Sometimes it's just like teaching your kids to brush their teeth, okay? They might not want to when they're young and understand why, but you as a parent know that this is better for them, and so even if they don't get it, even if they grumble and complain, you say, no, you got to do that every day. Same thing. Dad, why are you talking to me about this again? I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm saved. I know I'm supposed to be a light to the world. I know you know that, but I'm telling you, and I want to continually remind you. This was challenging for me this week because don't take away from any of this that I've got this mastered. In fact, there are friends of, of Sarah and, and, and me that do this all the time with their kids and are such a challenge to us because they have gotten into the regular practice of preaching to their kids and reminding them of spiritual things and, and tying God into the conversation. We can do that too. May we have that courage. Job does that here and may we do the same. Finally, and I'll just wrap it up with, with uh, this because my, my time is short. We see that he prays for them in the sense that he offers sacrifices for them. He says maybe there's a way that they have cursed God in their hearts. Maybe there's a way that they have sinned and I don't know about it. And this is Job not only taking responsibility for his own spiritual life, but for that of his kids. He's praying to God on their behalf. He can't impart forgiveness for them. He knows that. But what he can do is say, God, if they have sinned against you, 
May you not hold it against them. May they not immediately receive the consequences on this earth as their sins might deserve. God, if my children have sinned, help them to turn back very quickly and repent and come to you. Fathers, we have an opportunity to do that as well. And I tell you, our children won't often remind us to do that. They will tell us, pray for my game that I have coming up. Pray for my test that I have coming up. This is the same kind of things we might have said at, at their age as well. Um, pray for, for these kind of things. But it's going to take a spiritual maturity on your part to go beyond the externals and to pray for their spiritual lives and their heart. Pray for any ways that they may have sinned. Pray for God's forgiveness on their part, that they would quickly turn to him. May we be challenged by these things that we see in the example of Job this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've noticed this example of Job, I pray that you would just help us in our walk as parents, as fathers especially this morning. Help us to have these conversations with our children early. And God, as we notice even Job's children being in adult years, we are encouraged to know that we can continue to do these things even um, as we relate to our adult children. Um, for those of us who aren't parents this morning, may we also pray for others that we see around us for their spiritual well-being. May we be challenged as well. Thank you for this encouragement, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.